0: and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose McKinney, and Evans, and the Bowes Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Mark Boyle. You know Mark as the voice of the Indiana Pacers. We have all heard him. He is, his diction and his enthusiasm and his knowledge of the game is ingrained to all of us who are Pacers fans. And we're very, very thankful that you decided to come on. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So in the military, I was a broadcast journalist, and I always wanted to do radio play-by-play or television play-by-play. It never happened for me, but it happened for you. How soon, how early in your life did you say, that's how I want to make a living?
1: Uh, For me, it was a process. Like almost all kids my age at that time, I played baseball, and I was good enough at it that I thought maybe I could take it somewhere. By the time I was 14 or 15, I realized that I was good enough at it that I could play in my town at my (laughs) high school, but probably not beyond that. So I gave up that, although I kept playing. Then I thought about being a coach and quickly realized that I didn't have the patience for it. When I look back on those days, one of at least the way I see it, one of the characteristics of the way my mind works that I didn't understand at the time, but I am grateful for now, for whatever reason, I've always had a really good self-awareness of what I can and cannot do. So I knew I couldn't be a coach or a teacher because I didn't have the patience, even at a young age. Then I decided I wanted to be a lawyer, a defense attorney specifically. And although I don't have any regrets about where my career has gone, There are days where I think, I wonder what would have happened had I pursued that. I think I would have been pretty good at it. Maybe that's ego, maybe it's hubris, but I thought that was something I could do. Eventually, my mind took me to a place where I realized that I liked sports. I was ahead of most of my peers in terms of being able to use the language both orally and as a writer, and I thought maybe I could make a career out of it and additionally even though he would from time to time try to talk me out of it my dad was in broadcasting and was successful so I had a chance to see behind the curtain how it worked and it all appealed to me and that's a long answer to how I got to the point from where I thought I could be a major league baseball player to maybe I could be a successful broadcaster.
0: Did you have some broadcasting idols? I think we're we're relatively the same age. You're a, a, a day or two older than me. But you grew up in, in kind of the heady time of the late 60s and, and 70s. Did you mm-hmm. have some folks who said, I uh, want I to I do what Jack Whitaker's doing. I want to do what Pat Summerall's doing.
1: You now you're dating me, but those guys were guys
0: from my time. <laughs> uh,
1: I wouldn't go so far as to say idols, but there were guys that influenced me because they were so good at what they did. When I grew up in Minneapolis, this was in an era where a minimal amount of games were on television. So if you were a fan, you had to listen on radio. And in Minnesota, we had Herb Carneal and Ray Scott doing the Twins. Both are in the Hall of Fame. Herb is in Cooperstown. Ray Scott was a network announcer for many years after that. We had Al Shaver, who's in the Hockey Hall of Fame, doing the Minnesota North Stars. And then if you sat in your room at night and, you know, move that radio, does anyone, uh, are our listeners and viewers and, and uh, consumers here, do they know about dials and radios? <laughs> I'm dating myself here. <laughs> but, you know, you could sit in the room with that transistor radio and, and you could dial it around. And in Minneapolis, you could get some of the Chicago stations. You could get this, uh, the big blowtorch out of St. Louis, KMOX. You could get three W.E. out of Cleveland and you would hear all these other guys broadcasting games, whether it was baseball in the summer, hockey in the winter. Uh, And at some point I became so fascinated with I am sitting in my room in the dark. But this guy that is talking to me about the Twins and the Angels, I feel like I'm I feel like I'm seeing the field. And I thought that was such a cool skill. And I wondered, could I get to be as good as these guys where you could be driving in your car or sitting in a room or wherever you are, you're not at the ballgame and you can see what I see. Uh, When I speak to kids about broadcasting, uh, it's nuanced, but the one thing I tell all of them is this. I have one goal every night and that's this. I want you to see what I see. Mm -hmm. If I can come close to getting you there, then I'm doing my job. And I became almost obsessed with that challenge. And that's why uh, play-by-play really appealed to me. I've done other stuff. You have to on the way to getting where you want to go. But I was never interested in being a sports anchor or a talk show host, even though I've done that, uh, or really any kind of a broadcaster other than a play-by-play guy. And now that I'm older and have been around for a while, I look back and I didn't realize it at the time because I was so lucky I got some good opportunities when I was young. Uh, how lucky I am to have gotten to this level A and then to have been lucky enough to land at a franchise where the owners and management understand about credibility, understand that it's your biggest, at least in my opinion, asset. And although they're not going to let me go too far off the reservation in terms of being critical of pacer players, for example, they have always given me far more latitude than most guys who work for teams have in in terms of doing my job. So I've lucked out on a number of levels.
0: Growing up in Minnesota, talk about a little bit, please. Some of your first sports memories, radio or TV. It it doesn't have to be Minnesota teams, right? But you grew up at a time particularly where the Vikings were one of the two best teams uh, in the NFC, uh, lost uh, Four Super Bowls. Sorry, if you're a Vikings fan, didn't mean to bring that up. But do you have some memories where you're like, man, sports is is so different. It's such I'm so enthusiastic about it. I want my career to be involved in sports because it's completely different than saying you want to have a broadcasting career generally, but a sports broadcasting career.
1: That's an interesting question because as I've gotten older, and I'll I'll go back to your question here in a second, as I've gotten older, I do consider myself to have a career in broadcasting and not a career in sports. The older I get, the less interested I actually am in sports. Uh, I love the NBA because I know a lot of the people in it and I love broadcasting the games, but during the pandemic, I haven't missed sports at all. Uh, In the normal world before all of this happened, if there was a football game on at a place where I was, I would watch it. It's not that I don't enjoy it, but I can't remember. I'm sure I have, but I can't remember saying to myself, well, the Colts are on at one o'clock Sunday. I've got to I've got to map out that window. It's one of the reasons I quit doing uh, talk radio. I had a show in Indianapolis back in the 90s. And before that, I did talk in St. Louis and Minneapolis and New York. To be really good at that, you have to spend way more time paying way too much attention to things (laughs) I increasingly cared little about. But going back to the question, when I was a kid, I was the total opposite. I just absorbed sports. I played baseball in the spring, football in the fall, basketball in the winter. Um, As a real young boy, one of the ways I remember learning how to read was my parents, again, no TV, or not none, but very rarely could you watch a game on television. Newspapers were huge back in the day. And so one of the ways I learned how to read is, uh, my mom and dad would say, well, if you want to know more about what happened in the Twins game last night, because you had to go to bed at 8.30, here's the <laughs> newspaper, we'll help, but you know, read about it. And I wanted to know, so I used that as a tool to help me learn how to read, uh, and then, As I got older and had some success as an athlete, that's relatively speaking, I didn't have colleges knocking down my door or anything like that. But I was a good enough athlete that I could compete with my peers and play the various sports all year round. And I just became so enamored with it. And the reason I got into broadcasting was because it was a way to get into sports. And to me, there were three ways. We talked about this earlier. You could play, you could coach, or you could be involved in some other manner. Mm -hmm. Uh, broadcasting would be an example of some other manner knew I couldn't play didn't want to coach this was a way in Uh, and as I got older I became more about the broadcasting than about the sports to the uh, extent that when I leave this job which either I will on my own or they'll tell me to take a hike or whatever I don't envision myself ever not doing something I'll find some high school games to do just because I love the challenge of broadcasting a live event to seeing if I, to see if I can get you to see what I'm seeing. That's been my focus for years and decades and I find it compelling and challenging today.
0: Did you have a, a, a favorite, like, and I'm going to ask, I think I'm going to ask you something that I asked you a different way, just a few minutes ago, a favorite sports memory of your youth something that you remembered like an iconic event in sports. I think a lot of us who, who catch the sports bug early, we catch it as a kid. And for me, it was the big red machine. I was born in 67. So they were rocking and rolling in the mid seventies. It's the dolphins winning a couple of super bowls and going undefeated. Notre Dame was terrific in the seventies. IU was terrific in the seventies. So you have this, this seems like it's all encompassing bit of success, when you don't have a hometown team, and we didn't save for the Pacers. But growing up in Minnesota, you had some phenomenal uh, sports teams and, and eras there. Is there anything that particular sticks out to you? It's like, I remember being nine years old and watching X.
1: My response, I think might strike you as odd because I do have memories, but they're related to sporting events, not the event itself. For example, I have a vivid memory as a young boy Being at a Twins Red Sox game at the old Metropolitan Stadium where the Mall of America is now and the entire crowd was asked to leave because there was a bomb threat I don't remember who won the game I don't even remember if we went back in but I do remember sitting out in the parking lot with all these other fans and the players were walking around in their uniforms because nobody was allowed to stay in the stadium now I don't know what caliber explosives they thought were in the stadium but it occurs to me now that had the stadium blown up, we still would have been killed anyway. (laughs) Uh, But I remember that. I remember being in the stands at Williams Arena at the University of Minnesota in 1972, I think it was, uh, when Minnesota and Ohio State had a huge brawl that made Sports Illustrated. Uh, I don't know that people talk about it today. People in Minnesota do. But the point I'm making is it's it's not the games itself. It's not like – I do vaguely remember as a very young boy the twins playing in the 65 world series. I think I was in first grade or uh, I was in school. And the reason that resonates with me is because back in those days, they played day games in the world series. Mm-hmm. And we in class were allowed to stop learning and listen to the game on the radio. And I thought that was so cool. So my memories of sports are generally not about the games themselves. If you ask me to this day, what's your favorite pacer moment? I would tell you that my favorite Pacer moment is my first NBA game. It's a nondescript Bucks Pacers game in the fall of 1988, and it resonates with me because it was my accomplishment and my experience. People always think you're going to say uh, Reggie Miller against the Knicks, and those were cool things to be a part of as a broadcaster. But that was me just chronicling somebody else's achievement. It wasn't mine. Uh, the other mm. event that resonates with me is the brawl. We were at the Palace in Auburn Hills in 2004. And that night, uh, I fractured my vertebrae in five places as a result of that brawl. I don't remember specifics. Like you might say to me, remember that Pacers-Celtics game in January? No, not really, but I I can find (laughs) out. But I remember the brawl vividly. And I understand that's that's an extreme example. That doesn't happen every day. But another night at the Palace... Uh, the next time we went in there, there was a bomb threat and we laughed about it afterwards because the game was delayed 45 minutes. Now that time the arena wasn't evacuated. The players and coaches were taken out way out into the parking lot. So I guess they didn't care if we got blown up <laughs> about the sheep, <laughs> but the players and coaches <laughs> is another story. Another night. These are all palace related. Uh, related. Another night in the palace, there was a power out. And I use this as an example Uh, When I talk to kids about, you know, it's not just about broadcasting, but if you can, and it's not possible, but if you can, to the extent that it's possible for you, master the language, you can do anything you want, not just in broadcasting, but you can turn a mastery of the language, whether it's written or oral, into almost any career that doesn't involve manual labor. It gives you all kinds of different options. Uh, So the lights go out. I don't have a color guy, I sat there for an hour, all by myself and filled the time. Now it might not have been all that compelling, but I did fill it. Another time we had a game canceled in Memphis because there was a leak in the ceiling and water was coming down and they deemed it not safe, but they waited over an hour before calling. That time I had help and we filled the time. So when someone says, what games do you remember? I know I'm odd because if you asked almost all of my peers, they would say, Oh, yeah, that time that I was broadcasting Bulls, Celtics, for me, it's the time the roof in Memphis wouldn't hold water, <laughs> the time the lights went out in Detroit, uh, and I guess that's, that's part of, of a sliver of the explanation of why I say I now consider myself to have a career in broadcasting and not in sports. Um, I love that sports provides me with a career, and I love the relationships I've been able to establish as a result of being in sports. But I consider myself a broadcaster rather than a sports person, if in fact it's even necessary to make such a distinction.
0: Did you ever swap Minnesota stories with uh, a former podcast guest and uh, one of the best journalists I've ever worked with? And that's Jim Shella.
1: I know of Jim Shella, never met Jim Shella. Uh, as far as I know, Jim worked, uh, as I was
0: he at WCCO Television in Minneapolis? Well, well, no, I'm not sure where he, I'd have to listen to the he podcast He was in television, I,
1: or maybe he was a print guy, you, I don't remember.
0: No, Jim was but, a Channel 8 uh, political reporter who went to St. Cloud State and oh, came here. in and, Minneapolis. And he's a proud um, um, resident, proud, uh, excuse me, uh, born in Minnesota. And I can't think of anyone else off the top of my head I know who is from Minnesota. And so I thought maybe you guys oh, perhaps yeah. had... And he's a huge Pacers fan and a huge Colts fan and a great guy. I have
1: met Jim. I don't recall. I know who he is. Um, I, from time to time, just because it it gets under his skin because he is so loyal to Indianapolis. I'll occasionally refer to Minnesota as God's country when I'm talking to Bill better, just because it annoys him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We we don't dispute that. I'm sure it would annoy him. And, uh, and nobody knows the city as well. And, Quite frankly, as very few people have done enough, excuse me, have done what uh, Bill has done for this city. He's been everywhere and we wish him the best of luck on his new retirement from Pacer sports and entertainment Uh, in Minnesota. Were you in any way acquainted with uh, someone who I want to think of, I believe is from there and that's Herb Brooks.
1: Yes. uh, I just missed working with Herb Brooks. I was working with the North Stars and left right before he took that job. Uh, so I have met Herb Brooks, but never had the chance to work with him. I did work with Lou Holtz when he was uh, the football coach at the university. Oh, yeah, so. that's right. Uh, he wasn't there very long, but he was there when I was there. Uh, but I didn't know Herb except to have an occasional 30-second conversation in passing because he was from the area. He would show up from time to time at hockey games I was at. But in terms of working with him, we just were ships in the night. I was leaving Minneapolis just as he was coming to coach the North Stars.
0: For those of you who don't know, Herb Brooks was a longtime college coach, successful national champion college coach, as I recall, was also coach of the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. And it was in the game against the Soviet Union Uh, that was on Washington's birthday, February 22nd, 1980, that Al Michaels had the uh, immortal call. Do you believe in miracles? Yes. As a broadcaster, as someone who likes hockey, what did you think of that game? And what do you think of these sort of immortal calls that come down through history? Havlicek stole the ball. uh, uh, Jack Buck about uh, Kirk Gibson. I can't believe what I just saw. These sorts of things. Do Do you listen to those and go, Man, that and you have one that we're going to talk about later with the Wizard of Oz reference, but what do you think about these these calls and these events? They're so
1: coincidental because when a game starts, A, you don't know how it's going to unfold. B, when something of that nature does unfold, you get one shot at it, Mm. and you might blow it. And now when i was starting out there was there was barely television so you could make all kinds of mistakes and maybe nobody would ever know and if they did there weren't people on twitter 30 seconds later pontificating (laughs) about what a moron you are and so it's different now now still guys like jack buck and scully and the legendary guys they would still be great i'm not suggesting otherwise but uh, when calls become iconic, the reason I, as a broadcaster, am I'm impressed by them is because I know that this is one of the stimulating challenges of our business. You don't know; you literally don't know what's going to happen from one second to the next. And sometimes, when you're making a call, it ne- well, if you're, I-, I would say, never when you're making a call, it doesn't occur to you that it might become iconic. At least that's my opinion now somebody else might say otherwise but then these events become almost part of our fabric certainly our sports fabric and so every year at the world series you see the scully gibson call every year at the world series you hear jack buck when kirby puck at homers in game six in the 91 series say we will see you tomorrow night uh it's not even hockey season. You must hear this 50 times a year. They, do you believe in miracles? It has, it, it, that's not seasonal. That's forever.
0: And Michael but said, what then, you, Michael said what you said. He goes, it just kind of, we yes. couldn't believe
1: what we were seeing. And I'm going to tell you something about, you know, you asked me if I remembered anything in those days, I was working at a, a small radio station in Northern Minnesota. Uh, and we knew that the Olympics were coming. We broadcast that game on my station. We, one of many, many stations throughout the country that was on an affiliated network that was broadcasting specific Olympic events. And for me, growing up in Minnesota and then living in Minnesota when it happened, you know, over half that team was from Minnesota. Right. So we knew who those guys were. The average fan in the United States who tuned in to watch that game probably couldn't have told you the name of a single player on that team when the game started. By the time they won the gold medal, Those guys were all household names, or at least the main players. So it was a different time. The immediacy wasn't there. You'll remember that that game was actually played in the afternoon and shown on tape delay at night. That would never happen today. Plus, you had uh, the good old U.S. of A. against the evil Satan-inspired USSR. (laughs) And so there were political ramifications. Uh, The standards of professionalism were different in Russia than they were in the United States. So even though professionals weren't allowed in the Olympics at that time, by the definition in play, the Russians were not professionals. They were amateurs, even though in many cases they were a decade or so older than the U.S. Mm -hmm. and they'd been beating the tar out of NHL teams forever. And so there were all those things that came together. And as a broadcaster, I've often wondered this. He is talented enough that I feel he would have thrived anyway. But let's say the U.S. lost that game to the Soviet Union. How, if at all, would that have changed Al Michaels' career? Maybe not at all. On the other hand, that call was immediately iconic. And it had to have helped his career, although I tend to think a guy that talented would have succeeded anyway. But from time to time, I I throw that Because I've come up, since I was 19, I've been in broadcasting. And I assume every profession is like this from the standpoint of, there are a lot of people who are really talented who don't get to the upper levels because of whatever. There's a million different reasons, luck, circumstances. Uh, they ran afoul of a bad boss. Who The list is endless. So there are guys, I will guarantee you, there are guys as good as I am who can't get past the high school level. It's just the way it is. Uh, and so while a guy like Al Michaels is so supremely talented, the man's 72 years old, he still sounds good. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen every. So I think he would have thrived anyway, but I, I can't imagine there's any doubt that that was a, a big impetus for his journey at that time. He was already known, but he wasn't one of the Kings yet. And he was a younger guy, but I often wonder hey, if, if that hadn't happened, what would have happened to Al?
0: And for those of you who um, aren't familiar with the story, either the particular call by Al Michaels or the game itself, or the the process that led up to the team being selected uh, YouTube is your friend uh, along with uh, the movie miracle. Um, it was described the upset of the Soviet union by the United States was compared to a bunch of Canadian college football players beating the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's how big of an upset it was. I mentioned the movie miracle just a few seconds ago. Do you Mark have a favorite sports movie?
1: Oh, um if I had to pick one. Um I see you expect a guy who works in Indiana to say hoosiers, which is a great movie and I really like it. But I, I'm gonna go slapshot. Uh I thought that was one of the classic movies of all time. Uh, I Joe worked Blake. In
0: junior, yeah, I, I So <laughs> Blake, old time hockey.
1: <laughs> I, I, I worked in junior hockey for a while. Uh, before I was involved in the NHL. And so I could relate to the travel stories. And, you know, the the kids I was working with in junior were 16 to 21. They weren't salty, old, cranky veteran guys like in Slapshot. But I could relate to some of those experiences. Um, And when you get right down to it, it wasn't really a movie about hockey uh, any more than Hoosiers is a movie about basketball. Uh, There are messages beyond the sport in both of those movies and in every great sports movie. I liked field dreams. I thought that was great. Uh, the longest yard, mm-hmm. not the Adam Sandler longest.
0: No, yard. no.
1: Burt Reynolds longest yard. Uh, one of my all time favorites. I can watch that 10 more times.
0: Every time I see Bob Kravitz, um, who's on the mend and we wish him uh, the best as he uh, continues his recovery from heart surgery. Uh, Bob's agreed to come on the podcast and I can't wait for that discussion. Uh, legendary sports writer. And a friend. He's a good man. Every time I see him out, I just yell at him. Toe Blake? And he responds.
1: Old time hockey? <laughs> yeah.
0: And, and Bill Benner, if he listens to this podcast, will note that you did not choose Hoosiers. Oh,
1: and, and not only will he note it, I will hear about it. How can you not think Hoosiers is the greatest movie? Ever? And it is a great movie. Take a step back. Bill. It's a great movie. I liked it. I've, uh, I've probably seen it eight or nine times. It's a great movie.
0: You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and... McAllister machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest on the leaders and legends podcast today is Mark Boyle, the voice of the Indiana Pacers for more than 30 years. Mark, is there a Hoosier leader and or legend you particularly admire?
1: Oh, there are several, um, in no particular order. Uh, Well, in particular order, I'm going to start with one and then no particular order after that. Slick Leonard is, to me, uh, and I could go on and on about Slick. He's been my partner for 25 years, I've known him since I came here, so that's over 30 years. And this is a topic for another day, but I think that you could make the argument that without Slick and Nancy Leonard, downtown would still be a wasteland. There would be no Indianapolis Colts. There would be no Conseco Fieldhouse slash Bankers Life Fieldhouse uh, because that telethon that saved the Pacers back in the late 70s. Uh, You lose your team, you're not getting another one in the market this size. So now you don't have an NBA team, which maybe makes this market not as appealing for the NFL, which maybe makes it not as appealing for the NCAA, which means you don't need all these hotels, you don't need all these restaurants. I haven't lived here my entire life, but when I came in 1988, uh, Indianapolis, as I found out going through the league and talking to guys that I would get to know, was one of the dreaded stops on the NBA circuit. Nothing to do downtown. Everything closed at 10, or so those guys would say. Now you talk to these guys, they love coming here. There's restaurants, everything's within walk. Downtown Indianapolis, and I, I say this from the standpoint Of someone who gets around the United States as part of this job. Downtown Indianapolis is as good as it gets. It's really good for a variety of reasons. The logistics are fantastic. You can get anywhere on foot. Stuff stays open. Uh, There are enough different kinds of restaurants. I could go on. But if the Pacers fold.
0: And you know what? I don't know. Well, to your point, and let's give um, our friend Bill Benner credit where credit is due. He was the second or the third podcast we did. Uh, my former boss, Greg Ballard was the first. And he made the point which, which I didn't, had never really heard explained this way. And that is, and then a subsequent podcast that we did with Mark Miles and we did with Jim Morris and, uh, and uh, David Frick uh, kind of confirmed this. The decision by Richard Luger, then mayor, let build. me interrupt
1: you for one second, because that go was ahead. going to be my number two guy on the list behind Slick.
0: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll definitely give you a chance, because most people, when I've asked them this question on the podcast, Luger is their answer.
1: Oh, uh, you can't go wrong.
0: Is, is Luger's decision to build Market Square Arena downtown is the watershed event in modern Indianapolis's history. That decision changed the entire dynamic of the city. And how it was attractive to others. And you mentioned the pod or the uh, the telethon, that's come up in a few podcasts we've done. How close Indianapolis came to losing the Pacers, people forget. And you're right, I agree with you. No Pacers, Pacers had left, the Colts never would have come here. You may not have even have built the Hoosier Dome, the RCA Dome. Yeah, maybe. All of that's true. So, uh, and I don't. If I start
1: going down a list of, of leaders that I would admire. I'm going to leave somebody out. And when I started to answer the question, I said in no particular order and without defaming or minimizing anybody else, I'm going to go 1A and 1B, Slick and Luger. And then after that, many, many contenders. But to me, those two are the guys.
0: What about Eddie White?
1: (laughs) Well... I thought you meant, uh, you know, of, of people that were mortal. I, you, you didn't. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to tell you something about Eddie White, and if you want to fill in the blanks, because I don't know if everyone knows who Eddie White is. I have been covering sports since I was 19 years old, and I've been covering major sports, and by major I define it as Division One college or major league sports, since I was 21 years old. That's almost 40 years. I have never known Anybody who defines making a living as a schmoozer better than Eddie White. And number two, Eddie is maybe the biggest name dropper I've ever met in my life. But unlike most name droppers, he knows these guys and they know him. A couple of times I've hung out with him after hours at the NFL Combine. Who's who? Eddie, come on over. He's like a a mythical figure.
0: I told somebody,
1: he'll tell you, he'll tell you. you, And he's only been telling me this for the last year or so. So maybe this is a new thing, but it's a total lie. He will tell you, I don't like people. I don't like people What?
0: (laughs) You know, if I had to choose someone to be uh, stranded on a desert island uh, with for four or five years, and I could only choose men, I would probably choose Eddie because he would never run out of stories it'd be four years of four years of really good, really funny stories. And Eddie's come on the podcast a couple of times and we're very lucky to know him. Not only is he a a first-class self-admitted schmoozer who actually knows these people to your point, Mark, Eddie does a lot for charity and he does a lot to help people.
1: Yes. I don't mean to put, I don't mean to put more on his plate than he already has, but if you are running a charity and an auction is part of your thing, you can't find a better charity auctioneer than Eddie White.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I asked you a question about iconic calls, and then you just mentioned uh, Slick Leonard as a Hoosier legend, and he certainly is. Do you remember the first time he said, boom, baby? And oh, you yes. Think, and do you think, okay, this is going to stick?
1: No, because here's the way that played out. The first year I was here, I worked alone on the road, and at home, I worked with Clark Kellogg. After that, Clark went over to television, and I worked alone for the next several seasons. But during the playoffs, they would always give me a guy. I did a playoff series with Billy Keller. I did one with George McGinnis. I did one with Jerry Seasting. I did, I think, more than one with Slick. So in the playoffs, I had a guy. Slick had been doing television. The boom baby was already out there but I didn't know that because I don't see the televised games because Mm -hmm. I'm doing my thing at the same time they are. So I'm with slick for this playoff series. And it's the old, it's at the old Boston garden game one, best of five. And the Pacers have the ball. Slick is sitting to my left. The play is going the other way. Mm -hmm. And so I'm describing a play Chuck person tees up a three. And as it's going through the basket, I start to call it. And to my left, I hear this, I was like, I know this guy for five years. I didn't know he had Tourette's. What what is this? I was a little taken aback. So the NBA then wasn't like it is now. So there were several more possessions before another three was attempted. Same thing. Boom, baby. Well, then that's when I realized, okay, that's his thing. Uh, And... uh, he will tell the story is well known about, about how he came up with it. It was when he was coaching and he drew up a game winning play, and uh, he can tell it way better than I am. I'm giving you the capsulized version. And somebody hit the shot and he said, Boom, baby, let's get out of here. It became a thing. He used it on television, which I didn't know. And then he used it with me. And I, 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 uh, we've been together for 25 years. I'd like to know, there, there might be a way to do this. I don't have the time to do it. I don't even know if there is a way to do it. I wonder how many times I've heard him say, boom, baby.
0: Well, I was going to ask you, do you have a, and we'd love to have uh, Coach Leonard on the podcast. We would love it uh, because I grew I was born in 67, as I said, and I grew up on the Pacers of the ABA days. And that's kind of what you remember. Uh, do you have a favorite boom baby? Like when he said it after this shot, that sticks in my memory.
1: Uh, not really. Uh, in big moments, he'll give me, not me, us, the listeners, multiples. So in the typical flow of a game, so-and-so hits a three, boom, baby. But if it's a last second three, he'll go boom, baby, boom, boom, (laughs) boom, boom, boom. boom. Uh, Those are cool. Uh, But we've had, we've been fortunate that the Pacers have had, generally speaking, pretty good teams over the years we've worked together. And so we've called quite a few big moments together and no one specific thing stands out, but just the number of booms after the boom baby in big shots, that does resonate with me.
0: One thing that I want to talk about with your career, and then we can uh, expand on some Pacers stuff for the remaining minutes of the podcast is that you worked at WFAN in New York City. Yep. Well, one of our podcast guests, and he was a terrific guest. I knew him a little bit, but he was very kind to sit down with us, Jeff Smolian. Mm-hmm. And when he was on the podcast, he talked a lot about uh, WFAN and just sports talk radio in general. One of the things that he said that was funny was uh, as he kind of birthed this sports talk radio format and, uh, Movement, for lack of a better term, industry. How the other owners of teams, because he owned the Seattle Mariners at the time, would get on him and give him a hard time. Like, look, you created the sports talk thing. Now we're all getting beaten up, and now you're getting beaten <laughs> up, Jeff. So we got no sympathy for you. It's your fault. What was it like working at Fan? And and who were some of the people you worked with there? Because uh, at least a couple of them are famous names. Yeah.
1: Uh, for me, it was a it was a great time in my career. I was young. I was single. So there was no risk for me. A guy named Scott Meyer hired me in Minneapolis, was the general manager of KSTP AM radio. He was then tabbed to be the first general manager of this station in New York, and he took me with him. That's how I got there. I was 26, I think, when I got there. Didn't have a wife, didn't have children. But so for me, it wasn't a stressful time. If it didn't work, I would find something else. At least that was my mindset at the time. But we had people there that had moved families in. um, And this was, uh, fly-by-night is a a little bit flipped. It wasn't a fly-by-night thing. I'm sure a great deal of thought went into it. But it still was a prototype. It had never been done before. Sports talk had been done before, but never a 24-hour all-sports station. So we didn't really even know what we were doing. We were trying stuff, and discarding stuff on the fly. Uh, I remember the original premise was we had the New York Mets. They were our, our team that we had on the station, their games. The thinking at the beginning was that the most important thing was the updates. We would do sports updates at 15, 30, 45 in the top of the hour. This is before Twitter, before the internet. So there was some relevance to what we were doing. But we wanted it to be all sports talk. We didn't even really like having the Mets because they intruded on the sports talk. Mm. Well, then we quickly, not we, this, I'm just a passenger on the ship. Uh, I wasn't Captain Steuben. But the management then decided, you know what, the more teams we have, the better. Because then it establishes our credibility. We can program. You, know, you get it. Um, but we were operating on the fly and there were some big time guys there our morning guy was greg Gumble, who's had a very <laughs> successful career but was i'm telling you he was a poor poor morning man <laughs> he was not he didn't really know how to do radio not his fault he'd never done it as far as i know and radio is vastly different than television he was the morning guy jim lampley who went on to have a very successful career primarily as a boxing broadcaster was our afternoon guy The guy they brought in to build the station around was a guy named Pete Franklin, who had a wildly successful uh, talk show in Cleveland for many, many years. Uh, He was one of the pioneers of the the format. The other thing that they quickly realized is this. Almost none of us were from New York. I was in there from Minneapolis. Pete was in from Cleveland. Greg was in. I think Greg was, he had been at ESPN. I think he was living in Chicago. Jim I think lived in Los Angeles. People in City A want people that know about City A, not interlopers. Well, as time went on, they figured that out. But still, I left before this happened. I was there for a year, and then I went to St. Louis. Uh, But we were always wondering, was the station going to fold? How long would they go on? And then they made a decision that really saved the station. And because the station then began to thrive, Imitators crop. If that had folded, who knows if there would even be sports stations now? But they decided we're going to veer from the original plan, and they hired Don Imus to do the mornings, and then it just blew
0: up. Smolian Smolian says that in the podcast that that was the difference. Imus did sports stuff, but he
1: wasn't a sports guy, and he had credibility in New York. He was already a legend in the market. And, and then the other thing they did was, and this was after I was there, they, they were able, to, when I was there, uh, we were, was it 1050 on the dial? They got, they got the 660 frequency that used to be held by WNBC. Mm. And it was a much better signal, much better frequency. That was a big thing. But hiring IMAs to do the mornings was the springboard for all of the success they had.
0: Was Joe Buck there when you were there?
1: No, but Joe was our intern when I worked in St. Louis. Jack was doing the Cardinals, his dad. Joe, Joe, by the way, went to IU. And he was home, I think it was following his sophomore year. I think he would do some stuff on the station. You could see he was talented. Uh, but a uh, lot of, of broadcasters you would know came through WFAN. These guys came after I was there. Mike Breen was there. Uh, he was Imus' morning sports guy for a while. Ian Eagle was an intern and a producer there. Uh, Holly Rose was. Great who, voice. Uh, Ian Eagle is a great, great broadcaster. One of the best. Howie Rose, who's been the voice of the Mets now for many, many years, was one of our talk guys. Uh, There were a lot of talented people that came through there. Uh, And for me, it was a great experience because I was younger than almost everybody. And so I was able to learn from people that had more broadcasting experience than I did. It was an opportunity for me uh, to move outside of my comfort zone. You know, it's not easy moving to New York when you don't know anybody there. And I wasn't making enough money to live in New York. I lived in Jersey. So it was a, it was a personal growth experience for me too. It was, a, it was a big time opportunity for me in my career.
0: You mentioned having a radio talk show, sports talk show and not liking it. What, what didn't you like? And are there any radio talk shows that you listen to nationally or locally now?
1: Well, when I started doing it, I was a typical talk show host, hardcore sports. As I evolved, I changed. By the time I got here, I'd already done it in New York, St. Louis, Minneapolis. Uh, and so I didn't do what at the time was a typical sports program. And we were on WNDE for about three years in the early 90s. That's where I was doing it when we left Emis, And then would come back. we went back to Emmys after that. Uh, and they gave me great leeway to do whatever I wanted. So I didn't do totally sports. We would do pop culture, stuff that's common now. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't invent this style, but it wasn't common. Uh, I remember actually getting death threats because my first year doing the program in Indianapolis, I didn't grow up here. And to this day, I don't understand the appeal, although I do understand now the significance to the city and the state and the market. I used to refer to the uh, Indianapolis 500 as a 500-mile race around in circles on the way to nowhere. and in my harsher moments, I would call it death sport. <laughs> and that didn't go over too well. Uh, but, you know, you got to take chances when you're doing fun I, I, <laughs> I did enjoy, there were aspects of it that I did enjoy. The opportunity to be creative. Uh, I had good producers. They got me good guests. Um, and so I did enjoy that aspect of it. But when it when it came right down to it, there were two things I didn't like about it. And over the three years I did it here, I was able to take care of one of the issues by just cultivating and weeding out. Uh, I didn't take. By the time I was done here, I didn't take many followers. To me, callers are the worst thing about a talk show. Do you Agreed. really want to have Joe Citizen call up and ask who I think should be the Colts' backup left tackle? I don't. So I would weed those out. But you'd get a, a, a cadre of loyal followers who would add something to the program. You can deal with that over time. The one thing I couldn't deal with was I just got to the point, like I said earlier, I didn't want to spend the time. You can't do a talk show in Indianapolis unless you have, at minimum, a working knowledge of the Colts, and probably better than that. The same with the Pacers, the same with IU, the same with Notre Dame, the same with a bunch of stuff. And I just didn't want to invest that time anymore. I didn't have the interest anymore. And so that, as much as anything, was the reason I stopped doing it. Um, I filled in from time to time after that on MS. I've done some stuff with uh, Sirius over the years. I never had my own show, but the guy who's the vice president of sports there is a guy named Steve Cohen. Mm-hmm. And he worked with me at WFAN, and he was a producer also. So we came up in New York together. He called me one day and said, Hey, do you want, we're starting an NBA channel. You want in? I said, No, but if you need a fill in, i would be glad to do it. So I filled in for them for like five years. Uh, and we would always have this discussion about callers. The shows I did, always had two hosts and a relationship with the NBA. We had great guests and two knowledgeable hosts. Why in the hell do I need (laughs) callers? And we would have this debate, and one time one of the executives said to me, now, Mark, I I hear you, but you don't understand. You're used to doing terrestrial radio. These people are paying for this. We owe them more. I said, really? Well, by that standard, we should let people wander in off the stands and play in an NBA game because they paid to get in. They pay to be entertained, not to participate. But it's serious they didn't believe that. That wasn't their philosophy. And so they would encourage us to take as many calls. It didn't bother me because I was a fill-in guy and I was always the second guy anyway. It wasn't my show. Not a battle worth fighting. But if you, if you, I think, if you listen, and again, it's, it's, it's the same as me saying, I like Sinatra, you like Elvis. It's a matter of opinion. But my opinion is this. Almost all of the good talk shows... Have very few if any callers They're based on the hosts uh, If you listen to a show with a lot of calls to me, it's one of either two things Management has a philosophy that the host has to carry out or the host is just too lazy because callers fill the time You ever heard a good talk show that was dominated by callers? No, it's not possible
0: Did you I need to give credit where credit's due. Sometimes I listen to JMV just to listen to him interact with the callers. Okay. Well, then you see you, there's an appeal to that for you, not for me. No, just just for JM, just to listen, not to the questions from the callers, but just to listen to JMV handle the callers. It's It's an interesting way that he does it, but I agree well, you know, with you used, completely. I want to hear the to-
1: expert. We used, to, we used to do this on my show here. And I, it would be politically incorrect now. But when I had a bad caller, we had a paper cutter, uh, you know, out in the office. And we, we brought a tape recorder out there. And, you know, when you lift that lever up, it makes that. Mm-hmm. So we had that as a sound effect. And every time I had a caller that I thought was wasting my time, we would play that sound effect. And I would say he had been eliminated by Ahmed.
0: <laughs> the Sports Daily
1: Executioner, <laughs> in today's world, that would never fly. No. But in those days, it was one of our gimmicks.
0: <laughs> we are talking to Mark Boyle, the voice of the Indiana Pacers, on the Leaders and Legends podcast. In 1988, as he has referenced, he came here to the Circle City and really, in a way, maybe it was a couple of years off, but got to the Pacers just as we were on the upswing, an upswing, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, that's generally stayed constant with a few dips for the last several decades. What are the first kind of memories you have, not of your first games or whatever, the really kind of first Pacers memory? I came back from the military in 19... I got discharged from the Army in 1990, and that's about the time, I think that Person and Bird had their duel. Yes. Do you remember about that particular rivalry in that series?
1: It was really interesting because they were both elite trash talkers. Chuck was a big-time scorer. He wasn't nearly the all-around player Larry was, but he was a very dangerous player and a big-time scorer and a terrific shooter. And he and Larry went back and forth in that series. The Celtics won the series – That was the best of, if I recall correctly, that was the best of five era, and they won three to two. Uh, But Chuck had a couple of games where he just went off, and Larry was Larry. Uh, And it was really entertaining. The Pacers in those days, they didn't really start to succeed until Larry Brown came in 94, uh, 93, 94. Uh, And their philosophy changed at that time, and it's been pretty consistent since they now believe if you're going to have any kind of a chance to be a really good team, you got to start with defense. But in those days, the Pacers, defense? What is that? We'll just outscore you. And so they were capable. A lot of those Celtics games were like, you know, 125 to 121. Chuck, you know, I, you see this not all the time now, but you rarely saw it then. And to the extent that I remember specific plays from specific games, In one of the games at Market Square Arena, I think it was game four that sent it back to Boston for game five. The Pacers got out on a three-on-one break. Chuck pulled up and hit a three. Now, in today's game, no big deal. right? But then you didn't do that then. You took it to the rim until they stopped you or you passed it to the open man in the corner and hopefully whatever. Chuck just pulls up and drains this three, and I remember it so clearly because it was such an anomaly. So I remember things like that, but that specific series – Uh, It wasn't all about Bird and Chuck, but that was a that was a central storyline in that series, and it was really entertaining.
0: Were you able to, you know, chat up Coach Bird or GM General Manager Bird about that series at all when he came to the Pacers? Say, hey, I remember calling when you hit your face on the floor and then came back into the Garden.
1: This is how I approach new people that come to us, whether it's a player, a coach. I introduce myself. So they know who I am. And then after that, I'm around. But wherever the relationship goes, fine. Now, Larry is a really hard guy to get to know. It takes a long time. He's, uh, he's not outgoing. Now, once he gets to know you, then he's a, he's a great hang. And he's a cool guy. And he's one of the very few. And this is one of the reasons I like him personally. One of the very few at his level, whether it's a coach or a player. If he tells you something you can take that home. He's not about, you know, lying or it, it, he's just, this is what I got to say. If you don't like it. Don't.
0: Well, but Peter Vesey, first, the he, sports writer, Peter Vesey said, you know, go off the record, Larry, you know, let's have a real conversation. And Larry goes, why? I don't care what you write. Like, that's I, right. I don't and care. He doesn't.
1: Does uh, so he coached for three years. Uh, I would see him nearly every day for six months. But I don't think we ever actually had a meaning. He was pleasant and professional. He was the first coach we had in my time, though, that didn't do a pregame show. He had no interest in doing any of that. So we didn't have that professional interaction. He would just see me at practice. If I had a question, I would ask it. Uh, I don't recall ever having a meaningful conversation with him when he was the coach. I got to know him better when he came back into the front office. And then we had a lot of conversations. Is uh, but it, to this is day, if somebody says, are you friends with Larry Bird? I would say, no, I haven't talked to him in a couple of years, but I enjoyed the interactions I had when he was here.
0: Is, is it difficult? And I'm, I'm saying this as, as someone who's shaken Larry Bird's hand, you know, a few times, mostly in the presence of Mayor Ballard, you know, where he's shaken everyone's hands, right? Is it hard just not to be in awe of someone no. so great?
1: No. And here's why. And maybe this is my own ego or maybe I'm a narcissist. I figure this, these people are no different than anyone else, except they are really, really good at something. Most of us aren't. And the reason I answer your question by saying no, and this is going to make me look less than stellar, I figure I'm every bit as good at my job as they are there. so why should I be intimidated or nervous? Well,
0: you're, you're a Hall of Famer, broadcasting Hall of Famer. Yeah, but that ain't the same as
1: being a Hall of Fame player. I, I fully understand that but I've always regarded the people that I've dealt with coming up, even when I was younger. These are just people that are really good at something. They're not better than me. They might be. They're not worse than me, although they might be that. They're just people that are really good at something, so why should I be an all them?
0: You came to the Pacers at an incredible time in terms of the accumulation of talent and the transformation of the team. A person a few years before – you had Tisdale, obviously, who was there and then left. Reggie Miller, Rick Smits. In, in the, before we get to the, some of the more iconic uh, rivalries, as you kind of started to grow in your broadcasting, your connection with the Pacers, did you see the team kind of growing at the same time? Like, we could be really, really good together.
1: No, it kind of, uh, it kind of caught me by surprise. The first year I was here, Uh, and this is my 32nd season. The first year I was here, to this day, it's still the worst record the Pacers have had in my time. They started 0-7, and they won 28 games, which means they lost 54. The next year, they started making the playoffs, and they made the playoffs every year, 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, and never got out of the first round. So you could see they were competitive, but at least I didn't see that they were on the verge of something. Then Larry Brown is hired in 93 and they started that season, as I recall, 16 and 23. So again, Oh, they're going to battle for a playoff spot and then get bounced in the first round. It's business as usual, but I might be off on the numbers. I think they started 16 and 23 and then went like 32 and 11, the rest of the way, uh, or, or, 28 at 50. Anyway, they got better. As, and then they made the run all the way to game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals, which caught me by total surprise. When they went into the playoffs that year against Orlando, they were the lower seed mm-hmm. and they swept. Um, I wasn't stunned they won the series. I thought Orlando was beatable. But given the perspective, they'd never won a playoff series ever in the NBA since joining. That was their first one. Uh, And then the Hawks, I think, were the one or two seed in the next round. They took them out at six. And then they almost beat the Knicks. And from then on, that's 20, well, when this season ends, that'll be 26 seasons worth of games. The Pacers have been to the Eastern Conference Finals. I, I love this stat because when I mention it, most people are like, really? Pacers have been to the Eastern Conference Finals eight times in that 26 years, more than any other team in the Eastern Conference more than Cleveland, more than Miami, more than New York. Well, New York is downtrodden now, but they were a player for a while. Wow, it's because they've only won one of those series. They lost the other seven. They're like the Vikings or the Bills of the NBA from that standpoint. <laughs> they get there, but unless you win the big one, people forget you were good. And so, people in the NBA know the Pacers have done well, and in fact, I this may be my own bias, I don't think so, because you hear people, executives, other broadcasters, people who have been with other teams and come to Indiana, always rave about the organization, the franchise, the ownership, the way it's run. I always say this, and there's no way to prove this one way or the other, and my bias probably does come into play here. If the Simons owned the New York Knicks or the Los Angeles Lakers and hired the same people to run those franchises that have run the Pacers, they would have multiple championships by now because they would have exponentially more resources. Right. You know how hard it is to be good in the NBA in a market this size? It's really, really difficult. You don't have the revenues. Uh, you don't have the ticket sales. The Pacers are almost always near the bottom of the league in attendance with among the cheapest ticket prices. And that's one of the misnomers about this this area. I moved here in 88. I knew nothing about it, really. I would fly into the airport in Indianapolis to do a Minnesota-Purdue game or an Iowa-Indiana game, but that was my whole experience. But you knew from the outside looking in, it's basketball country. And it may well be basketball country. I've been here 32 years. Now, I'm not going to dispute that. But this is one of the weakest NBA markets. It's not a good NBA town. It isn't. Think about the teams they're putting on the floor every year and the and the ticket price. It's nobody's fault. You don't have to go. I'm not blaming the fans, not at all. Spend your money any way you want. But if this was basketball country, you think they do a little bit better given the caliber of teams they generally put out there.
0: Have you ever or when was the last time you watched the 30 for 30 winning time or the last time you looked up the your call, you and Slick's call of the eight points and nine seconds?
1: You know that 30 for 30. Um, every once in a while, I'll be talking to somebody and uh, the subject of ESPN will come up and I'll say, have you ever seen my 30 for 30? What do you mean? <laughs> so, you know, my 30 for 30, Reggie's in it too, but it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that, I saw something about that the other day. It was one of the first ones they did, I think. Uh, was it? 15 years ago 10 years ago. I don't know how long ago. They did
0: quite it. a while now.
1: Yeah I um, mean, it was a lot of fun to do but Specific to your question. I, I, I lost my train of thought here. What was what was the question? What was the last
0: thing? time uh, I probably five oh, or six time times? I've looked up the YouTube clip of your call of Reggie I'll
1: tell you a story about that the uh, producer was a guy named Dan Cloris, And I sat down with him for like an hour to do an interview and he used bits and pieces of it as he did with many others. And he asked me about the call and I told him that I hated it. And he said, okay, noted. Well, then he puts the thing together. He calls me before it was released and said, hey Mark, just so you know, uh, I know you hate it, but I had to put it in there. And so it was in there. Um, And over the years, I've come to like it. I've always appreciated that fans seem to like it. That That was 1995. So that's a quarter of a century ago, uh, ago, and almost literally not a week goes by where somebody doesn't mention it to me, in a bar, in the grocery store.
0: What did they mention
1: specifically? Oh, man, I still remember that call. Um, because it's, it's, it's I'm not putting it in a class with do you believe in miracles, but here is something that does happen along those same lines. It gets replayed every spring when the playoffs start, So it's always out there, and if you weren't around, then you have heard it. The reason I hated it, if I can anticipate your next question, it's the only time in my entire career, I am a huge believer in spontaneity. I think that's where your best work comes, especially when you're broadcasting live events on the fly. But, man, I had that in my head. If we ever get to this, I'm going to throw it out there. And when I threw it out there, have you ever had something happen to you that took literally seconds but seemed like it took an hour? It was unfolding in your own mind so slowly? I could almost see those words coming out of my mouth, and I was trying to grab them and shove them back in, and then they were out there. And I thought, oh, I'm never going to hear the end of this. It's so corny and so lame, and people loved it, and I'm grateful for that because I thought it was going to be a career-long source of embarrassment. (laughs) And over the years, I've come to understand why people like it. I think maybe had had those very same words popped out of my mouth spontaneously, maybe I would have liked it. But it was against the way I do things. And I wish I hadn't done it, or at least I did at the time. Now I'm glad I did. People like it.
0: Do people ever say, say it, say it, Mark?
1: Uh, Not usually, every once in a while. And this is the response I always give. If someone says, say it, I say, hey, what do you do for a living? And then they'll say, I do X, Y, or Z. And I say, well, I don't ask you to do that for free. So don't ask me to do my job for free.
0: (laughs) Well, we're not paying, Mark, for this podcast. So I'll say it. Uh Ding dong, the witch is dead, which not only is a famous sports call from Mark Boyle Not only is one of the most famous movie lines of all time, but in my one of my favorite pieces of trivia ever in 1943 when the United States Navy uh, decoded the Japanese uh, messages and they found out that Admiral Yamamoto was going to be flying nearby And they sent up some planes to intercept Admiral Yamamoto's plane, Yamamoto being the author of the attack on Pearl Harbor. The code for the successful downing of the plane by the pilots who did it was ding dong, the witch is dead.
1: I I did not know that. The reason I came up with it was because in my mind, the Pacers were analogous to Dorothy. (laughs) In an uncharted area with threats all over the place. They didn't know if they were going to get to the end of the yellow brick road. And the Wicked Witch was looming. The Knicks, remember, had beaten the Pacers in 93 in the first round, beat them in the conference finals in 94. And they, by then, had established a real intense rivalry with the Pacers. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, the analogy was the Pacers were Dorothy and the Knicks were the Wicked Witch. That's how I came up with it. But that's an interesting uh, piece of trivia. I didn't know that.
0: What was it like? We have a few more minutes before we get to the five questions. And there's two or three things I want to ask you about. What was it like to be courtside and watch Reggie Miller and hear Reggie Miller put Spike Lee in his place? And that it, it was almost unprecedented for that sort of courtside player yeah. interaction at the time. Now you wouldn't think twice about it, but at the time it was kind of a big deal. Spike Lee is a very famous, yet somewhat controversial figure. And here's our own very kind, yet um, uh, certainly brave hearted Reggie Miller going at it with this guy on the sidelines.
1: Yeah. Uh, in New York, where those things took place, we were probably. A dozen rows off the floor, so we didn't actually hear it, but we could see it a great view of it. And it was, you know, there's trash talking has been around the NBA forever, but it's generally player versus player, it's not player versus celebrity <laughs> fan. And so it was unique, this just didn't happen. And all of the dynamics in play there made it so fascinating. It wasn't just Reggie versus Spike. It was the small-town Pacers against the Metropolitan Knickerbockers. Uh, There were so many little mini-stories within the big story, and that was one of them that made it so interesting. The other one that I always uh, thought was sort of amusing was, remember back in those days, the media billed it as Hicks versus Knicks. The irony was that the Pacers had more people with New York ties on their team than the Knicks did (laughs) <laughs> you know, they had Mark Jackson, they had Chris Mullen, they had Sam Perkins, uh, they had Larry Brown, they had Donnie Walsh. Yeah. The Knicks had guys from not New York. The Pacers had way more New York people than the Knicks
0: did. And if not for a, uh, hmm, you know, this podcast is independent, so I can say this without attributing it to Mr. Boyle, is uh, Mr. Boyle is w- without the the... Telltale rough edges of a uh, envelope. Patrick Ewing could very uh-huh. well be playing for the Indiana Pacers. Uh, that was
1: that was before my time. That was the eighty four draft, eighty
0: five lottery. Yeah,
1: eighty uh-huh. five. Uh, yeah, that was that was when they had that big thing and they cranked it up and there were envelopes with which logos, which was all a they, big
0: waste of time because we all knew where he was going anyway.
1: I thought it wasn't the envelope supposed to be frozen. Was that it?
0: Whatever they did, it worked. <laughs> yeah.
1: So you buy into the conspiracy? Oh,
0: it's hundred. It's not even. We don't do controversy and conspiracy here on the Leaders <laughs> and Legends podcast, but, um, yeah, that was, that was a done deal. There's no way in hell Patrick Ewing wasn't going to New York. And uh, you know what? He didn't win any championships either, so all no, their nefarious didn't. activities uh, went for naught. The he did get to the finals twice, though. He did, and he lost. He did. He... He's a terrific player, and we're obviously having fun with the mental- the Hoosier mentality, right? The world's against us. There's no yeah, way yeah. these – and then we got kind of pe- got Peyton Manning, and that changed. You know, we became a different city in, in the world, of course, because of, because of him and then because of the Pacers. In 2000, we make it to the finals. We play the Lakers, who are at the beginning of a significant run. What were your thoughts, to the extent that you can re- remember them, Twenty years ago, about what that series was going to be like, and, and the chances you thought that the Pacers had to win that series, which we lost four games to two.
1: The Lakers were the favorite, but I thought the Pacers had a chance to win, and the whole thing turned in Game Four. The Lakers won two in Los Angeles, and then the Pacers won Game Three at Market Square. I'm uh, sorry, at uh, were we still at Market Square
0: then? No, it was Conceico. no it was the first year, first year maybe yeah,
1: first year of Conseco. So then Game 4 comes, and a golden opportunity was missed. Shaquille O'Neal fouled out, and the Pacers lost in overtime. Now, that's not to say they would have won the series. They did win Game 5. It came from a fairly significant deficit in Game 6 to tie the game in Los Angeles in the fourth mm-hmm. quarter but lost. The Lakers were the better team, but not by so much that you thought the Pacers didn't have a chance. And O'Neill was so dominant. He was so big and so strong. In fact, that series uh, was the impetus for the rule change where you couldn't foul a player in the last two minutes. You could, but you couldn't foul a player off the ball in the last two minutes without serious consequence. They Mm -hmm. would get the free throw and they would keep the ball. So there was really no reason. You could do it until two minutes left and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but in some of those games, O'Neal went to the foul line like 8,000 times (laughs) because when the Pacers were behind in the final two minutes, they would just foul him every time the Lakers put the ball in play, and he was shooting uh, copious amounts of free throws in the final two minutes, so they changed that route. Uh, He was too big and too strong. It really came down to that. Bryant was great, but he wasn't the Bryant we would see in later years yet. He was great, and it was his play in the overtime that gave the Lakers the winning four, so... They had the better team. Uh, In my time, and this is always a matter of opinion, I thought the 98 team was better. The one that lost to Chicago in the conference finals in the seventh game, which was Jordan's last championship. Which has
0: team become famous again because of the ESPN series. Forgive me. Yes.
1: The 99 team was very good and was favored in the conference finals and lost to the Knicks. Uh, So they've had some good teams here. That 2000 team was great. The most talented team the Pacers had, in my estimation, was the team that won 61 games. In uh, was it 0304, the year before the brawl. 0304, lost to the Pistons in the conference finals. Jermaine O'Neal, Ron Artest, Steven Jackson, Jamal Tinsley—really talented, but lacked the maturity and the professionalism of some of the other good teams the Pacers have had. And when you get to that level, there's not much separating the better teams. So if you're lacking things like professionalism and maturity, you're at a severe disadvantage against some of these other teams that might not have the talent you have. Uh, And I thought that was the most talented team the Pacers had in my time.
0: And it seems like the Pacers had a little bit of, and you correct me because obviously you're the expert and I'm just a fan, but it does seem the Pacers had a little bit of bad luck through the years. They're on their upswing just as the Knicks start to get really good. They're on the upswing again in the late 90s. Jordan comes back. The Pacers are really good in the year, in the first part of the millennium. That's when the Lakers start their run of, of five championships. The Pacers get really good again. LeBron James is in Miami with Bosch and Dwayne Wade. I hate to say that it seems like the Pacers can't catch a break and, and be the upswing team, the hot team, when it's just them. But in some ways, they're almost they almost remind me of the Milwaukee Bucks in the 80s who consistently won 55 to 60 games every single year for multiple years and consistently lost to the 76ers and the Celtics in the playoffs. And that's one of the reasons uh, I agree with that assessment.
1: That that's one of the reasons that that 03-04 team that I talked about was such a missed opportunity because that was the year that Detroit beat the Pacers and won the championship. Detroit was similarly uh, stocked in terms of personnel. They didn't have any superstar guys. They had many good players like the Pacers did. They had Chauncey Billups and Richard Hamilton, uh, Tayshaun Prince, Ben Wallace, really good. And they beat that Laker team that was imploding with Bryant, Peyton, Carl Malone, uh, Hall of Fame players, some of whom were on, on the downsides of their careers. But had the Pacers been able to beat the Pistons, it's certainly within the realm of possibility, perhaps even probability given the way the Lakers imploded in that final series, that the Pacers might have won the championship. But, you know, they were beaten by James twice in, in the Miami years. When James went on to win, Jordan took him out in 98. Uh, the Knicks team that beat him in 94 was in the – they lost in the conference finals seven times. And of those, uh, I'd have to think off the top of my head, most of those teams that beat the Pacers lost in the finals. That's the 94 right. Knicks lost, the 95 Magic lost. The Bulls did win. The 99 Knicks lost. Um, the Heat did win. So it, it's, a, it's a little bit of mix and match there. But uh, your point is, is valid. They were beaten by Jordan. Uh, Ewing was an elite player at the time. Absolutely. Uh, James is arguably the best player ever. and Certainly one of the best ever. They couldn't get past him. And, and then that, even though they weren't good enough to say, well, had James not been there, we would have won. James still took them out multiple times when he was in Cleveland and the Pacers weren't quite as good.
0: Could you or would you, should you name your Boyle-era Pacers starting five?
1: Uh, good. Why, why do you say should I? Why, why shouldn't
0: I? <laughs> well, you know, I, we don't want to make anyone mad here on the uh, Leaders and Legends well, no, podcast. It's a, little,
1: it's a little too late for that. <laughs> uh, let me see. So you want, you, want a, you want a traditional starting five. A true want starting five. five. You want two guards, a center, two forwards, or some variation yes, sir. with a point guard and so on. Uh, let me see. Objectively, not my own personal favorites. In other words, uh, I really liked uh, Stephen Jackson. He's one of my all-time favorite players, but I wouldn't put him on that team if I were going to do it objectively. So you're not asking me for my five favorite guys. Uh, You're asking me if I was going to play a game, name five starters that I thought I could win with.
0: That's exactly right. And if the the play-by-play person from the Celtics was put together his five and you had to play his five and you go, I need to construct a team that's going to win.
1: Okay, I would go go with uh, Mark Jackson, Reggie Miller, Ron Artest, Jermaine O'Neal, and Rick Smithson. Now, when he was here, Jermaine played the five, and so did Rick. But Jermaine could play the four, and Rick could play the five.
0: As an announcer, is there an unwritten rule, or is it a written rule, or are you gently chided, you just can't blast the referees all the time?
1: Well, it depends on the person. There are guys that have used that as part of their calling cards. And it's becoming, if if you watch local telecasts now, it's becoming increasingly prevalent. I don't believe it. Uh, But there are guys that have had great careers that do it. Uh, So it's it's up to you. And along those same lines, this is what I came to conclude very early in my career. Play-by-play is an art more than it's a science. So there's no right way to do it. There's a million different ways to do it. And so I concluded early in my career that I am going to broadcast these games the way I would want to hear them if I were listening to them. That's one of the reasons, for example, that if you listen to one of our broadcasts uh, on this year's Pacer team, for example, we have T.J. Leaf, T.J. McConnell, We've had, uh, you know, players with initials over the years. Most broadcasters just say T.J. McConnell. When I was a kid listening to games, if a guy was playing and they only used his initial, it would just annoy the hell out of me that they wouldn't tell me what those initials stood for. So now (laughs) as a broadcaster, I always mention probably multiple times a night. Timothy John McConnell Jr. is checking in. And in case you don't, I don't say this. But for that, that, because that could confuse somebody. So I do it like this. I say, Timothy John McConnell Jr. is checking in. TJ will replace so-and-so. So So now, oh, it's TJ McConnell. Ty Jacob Leaf, always at least once when he comes into the Because I was so angry as a little boy. (laughs) And so when I was young, listening to games and trying to come up with my own way to do things, it just irked me when guys would brag the refs. Because now that I've done thousands of games, at a variety of levels, I see this. There are bad calls in every game. There are good calls in every game. I'm hard pressed to remember a game that the defic- officials determined the outcome of. Now, that doesn't mean that if there's a replay, we won't discuss the pros and cons of the call on the floor.
0: Even the Larry or, Johnson continuation.
1: The Larry, uh, at the time, I didn't say anything about it. But that was that. That was a call that arguably cost the Pacers a game. Although it, you'll remember, it didn't give the Knicks the lead, did it? Didn't it tie the game?
0: And then he had to shoot the free throw.
1: Yeah, and that gave them the lead. So the game... And, and Bird and the went crazy. Had, the, well, it was right in front of his bench. The Pacers in that game had an eight-point lead with less than three minutes to go. So it wasn't just that. All that. That was an egregious call. I would address something like that, although I didn't address that one at the time. Here's why. I want you, as a listener, Remember that you can't see it. You're relying on me. So I have to be trustworthy. I have to be credible. If I'm ragging on the officials all the time, let's say, some, let's say that I'm known for criticizing the officials. And here comes that Larry Johnson play. And I whine about that. The guy listening in his car says, well, Mark always wants about the officials. But what I want him to say is, Mark never says anything about the officials. That must have really been bad. It's all about credibility. I'm not going to criticize a guy that does get on the officials. That's his style, but it's not mine. And I don't believe it.
0: Not only plus plus I got slick to do it. (laughs) Yeah. He's what the hell does he care? (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) You Mark, you have a a number of interests. You do a lot for charity. You've, you've worked some odd jobs. You've walked across the state, one thing I want to ask you about before we uh, end with the five questions is your love of chess. Mm. I started playing chess in fifth grade. It was part of the Bobby Fisher boom I've played. I currently have uh, I think six games going as I speak on chess.com. It's an amazing, amazing game. It is actually, I tell people when they ask me, you know, how did you tell me about your PR philosophy? How would I be better at PR? I tell every single person play chess because it's not just about what you do. It's about what the other person does as well. I think it's a tremendous, tremendous opportunity to be a better thinker, to be a more strategic thinker. Uh, You played in the US Open Chess Tournament, which is the top of the top. Tell us about your love of the game and and how do you think it helps you mentally?
1: Well, I'll I'll start by saying I I agree 100% with everything you just said. When I started playing chess, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I I was a young man, not even a man, a boy. And the thing that I first noticed about it, beyond the obvious, uh, there's a a definite strategic element to it that's very appealing. You've got to pay close attention to what your opponent is doing and try if you can to figure out what he's thinking about doing. But the thing that caught me as a young man who wasn't really self-aware yet, and I don't know if you had this same experience, once I started playing, and got good enough at it so that I was locked in. I could play a game that lasted four hours and it seemed like 20 minutes. Because you're just not aware of, if you're doing it right, you're just not aware of anything except that board in front of you. You're not making your move, at least I wasn't. And then, you know, like when it's your other guys, when it's your opponent's turn, you're not pulling out the sporting news and reading stuff like, (laughs) You're you're just sitting there, even though nothing's going on. You're mulling things over in your mind. And and the other thing that I was never great at chess. You mentioned I played in the U.S. Open. I did. But it should be noted that I don't know what the format is now, but in those days, all you had to do was sign up to play. And I wanted to see if I could play against really good players. I was beaten uh, by a 12-year-old. I was let's see this was 1996 maybe so I was I was in my you know I was in my mid-30s I was beaten by a 12 year old I played a draw with the which I to me is my greatest accomplishment ever in chess I played a draw with the uh, US Armed Forces champion so I thought that was pretty cool Uh, but the thing about it is you're looking at that nothing's happening for minutes on end but you're still processing what about this and the other thing, it teaches you to think not just critically, but effectively. Because when that process first started with me, I tended to overanalyze. What am I missing? What am I missing? What, what, what? Well, pretty soon, if you get, uh, not literally, and especially once you get further into the game, there's only a finite number of things your opponent can do. He doesn't have stuff he's going to pull out of his pocket that you've never seen before. <laughs> but you don't know that when you're learning the game. And it can be a little bit overwhelming. But it, it does, I think, impact you in ways beyond playing the game of chess. It, it helps your brain think and formulate and think ahead. Uh, I, I find myself even now uh, thinking ahead about things that have nothing to do with chess. Hey, if this happens uh, next week, what, what am I going to do? That's right. Yeah. So uh, it's a, it's a great game. And if I had kids, I, I would, you know, I'm never going to make a kid do anything, but I would encourage them and and try to help them learn how to play chess. I think it's an invaluable thing.
0: My son won some trophy playing football when he was in junior high school. And, you know, he's of course, he's all proud. Like he should be, you know, it's, it's football and he worked hard and, and it was he and I and his mother and, and my daughter who was younger and some of my family, And he looked at me, he goes, Daddy, what was your greatest athletic accomplishment as a kid? And I said, going undefeated in the state chess championships, my eighth grade year, to his great delight. And everyone else looking at me like he said, athletic accomplishment, like, (laughs) like, that's not an athletic. I'm like, that's that's all I had. I didn't have any other options. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn. And McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Mark Boyle is our guest. We've come to the five questions. Mark, we ask the same five questions of all our guests. Are you ready? Yeah. What was your first job?
1: I was a dishwasher in a seafood restaurant.
0: What was your first concert?
1: Bachman-Turner Overdrive.
0: So you're not, have you worked taking care of business? No, in wait, wait, wait calls? let
1: me take that back. It wasn't BTO. It was the guess who, which had some of the same uh, band members. It was the guess who, yeah.
0: If but you yes, could suggest uh,
1: taking <laughs> care of business was one of my songs. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend?
1: Wow. That's, that, that's so open-ended because it depends what your purpose is, but without any parameters at all, uh, a book that I read when I was younger that stuck with me and I've only read it once. I should read it again. Uh, I would highly recommend the catcher in the Rye* by JD Salinger.
0: If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Would I be safe? Correct. You would be safe. Pearl Harbor. That's a great answer. We've not had that one yet. That's a great answer. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Anyone living today? Yes, sir. Wow, that's a good
1: question. Um, That's a really good question. And it, it demands more thought than you probably have time for here. So let me just come up with an answer. Anyone living today for two hours and this person would be totally candid? Off the record. Absolutely. I don't know if uh, this is going to be a bit of a political statement. I don't know if he is capable of being totally candid, but if he were, I would love to sit down for two hours with Donald Trump.
0: Same answer as Eddie White. Ah, Mark Boyle that, is the what
1: does that say about me? I don't know.
0: Well, I guess you could just have dinner with Eddie White instead. Yeah, really, which I've done. And it wasn't that <laughs> captivating. But I bet he was candid. <laughs> he was. He
1: was candid, yes.
0: Mark Boyle is the voice of the Indiana Pacers. You have heard him thousands and thousands of times, and we are all better for it. He's a Hall of Famer, and he's a Hoosier legend. We cannot thank you enough, Mark, for coming on the podcast.
1: Well, it was my pleasure, and I don't normally say this. In fact, I almost never say it, and I almost never do interviews this long. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com.